Starting with verse 1, 1 Kings 19. We're starting in the middle of a story about Elijah, which I'll come back and catch up to where we are now in just a few minutes. But starting with verse 9, chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose, ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. And touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went of the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his faith face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and you arrive, you will anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escaped from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escaped from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. And I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You may be seated. One of my favorite lines from the Chronicles of Narnia, which I probably have used before because it's my favorite, 
is from the silver chair. And in that story, there is a new character who was introduced to the Chronicles of Narnia, Jill. She was not familiar with Narnia, but she finds herself on a high mountain in Narnia. And in front of her is a giant lion. And she's afraid. And she doesn't know if the lion's going to eat her or what. The lion's kind of toying with her, having a little bit of fun with her, perhaps. She becomes thirsty and she sees that there's a stream of water flowing down the mountainside, but the lion is kind of guarding that stream. So she says, uh, do you eat little girls? And he says something along the lines of, I've devoured kings and kingdoms, men and women, boys and girls. And, um, you know, kind of left her to that. And she's not sure what to do, but she says, after contemplating, I think I'll look for another stream and I'll drink there. And he says, there is no other stream. Come drink. And she does, and she finds that her thirst is immediately quenched in a very remarkable way. I've entitled my sermon, Spiritual Satisfaction. Perhaps it should have had another title, I don't know, but uh, you may say, okay, that's a great title. Spiritual satisfaction, you tell us like three or four ways to find spiritual satisfaction. I can't do that, or I won't do that. More is involved in it than that. But you've all had that experience of not being satisfied with things. Maybe you need to buy a new shirt, new pair of slacks, new dress, blouse, and you go to one store and you see stuff and some things look pretty good, but you say to yourself, yeah, but what if I go to another store and there's something better there and even at a better price? So sometimes you can spend all your time looking for things and wind up back at the first place and buy what you saw right off the bat. Okay. Or maybe you received an invitation for some party somebody is giving. And you know those people and you know you'll have probably a pretty good time, but you don't send that RSVP and tell them you're coming because what if something else comes along that's even better and I wanna to go to that? We would see the pearl of great price and keep looking at other fields to see if there's something better, okay? That's the way we are in our fallen human nature, even our saved human nature. Elijah, had lost his satisfaction in the Lord. Now, as we go through some of the things in his life, things he's already encountered, that might just seem absolutely impossible that that could happen. How could this person of all people lose his confidence in God, become so dissatisfied with life that he actually asks that God would just let him die? We'll look at some of those things in just a minute. My outline might be somewhat convoluted and my notes always have arrows going from one thing to another and they crisscross and I don't know why I do that, but I do, that's just the way I work. But in order to, to help you remember a few things, I've tried to do a little bit of a rhyming here. So I have three points that I want to talk about if you talk about Elijah as an example 
of someone searching for satisfaction. First is the fight, F-I-G-H-T, the fight, Elijah's spiritual battles. Two, the flight, Elijah's run from Jezebel's wrath. And three, the sight, the sight, as the Lord reveals himself in a very unique way to Elijah there on Mount Horeb, which is also referred to in some places as Mount Sinai. So let's get started. If you would turn back to chapter 17 in 1 Kings, Elijah just appears on the scene. He's a prophet there in the, uh, the northern kingdom. Ahab is the king. His wife Jezebel is a very evil woman. She's wicked. She's a very, very devout follower of Baal or Baal. Some people say, but I always just say Baal. Very devout follower of, of Baal and has brought that in a deep measure into the life of Israel. One of the first things we see Elijah doing is calling for a drought. At the middle of verse one, he says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And there begins a very extensive drought that affects the nation in very significant ways because of the sin of the people and their worship of a false god, Baal. We find him departing, hiding in a ravine. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Well, he's sort of uh, laying low now after calling for that drought because nobody's going to be happy with him. He's kind of hiding out, and the ravens take care of him. I've heard some people say this means that we should only eat twice a day. Well, this is a description of something that happened with Elijah, but it's not a prescription of what we should do. If you only eat twice a day, that's fine. But if you want to eat three times or more, that's your prerogative. So we're not commanded here just to eat twice. This is what happened here. Then if we move on a little bit in the chapter 17 down to verse 14, we find that Elijah staying with the widow who has a son. The famine is now uh, pretty intense because of the drought. And the Lord says, Elijah says to the widow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty till the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So she didn't have much, but what little she had was, was renewed every day. So there's always enough flour to bake a cake of bread and oil to, uh, to cook it in. Then a little bit later, we find that uh, this child dies. And in verse 21 says, then he, that is Elijah, stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. 
So here's a dead boy who's raised to life in God's grace. Then we move to chapter 18. And there's a lot in this chapter, but the gist of this chapter is that things come to a head with the, uh, the priest of Baal. So Elijah determines that they'll have a contest to see which God can answer by fire. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. And so he lets the priest of Baal, since there are more of them, go ahead. There were 450 of their priests and then about 400 of another, uh, another set of prophets who were there. So they go first. So they get the altar all made, the sacrifice on it. They, they cry out, calling for their God to send fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice. So they work for some time doing this. No fire comes. Elijah seeming to know some about what Baal, the myths about Baal are. And some of those myths say sometimes he's taking naps. So he says to their prophets, why don't you just cry a little bit louder? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. And so they work themselves into a more of a frenzy and they're cutting themselves with knives and they're dancing around, but no fire ever comes. Another myth had it that sometimes he goes on journeys into other places. So he said, maybe call even louder than that for him to hear you. So eventually they kind of wear themselves out. Elijah says, okay, that's enough. And he has his sacrifice set, the wood, the animal, and all of that. And then he says, I want you to bring in barrels of water and dump on the, the sacrifice, and more barrels of water, and more barrels of water after that. Then he prays a very short prayer, asking God to demonstrate that he is the true God of Israel and to send fire to consume the sacrifice. And that fire falls. It only, not only consumes the sacrifice and the wood, but the stones, the water, and everything, even the dust, it says, is burned up. Then he calls for the prophets of Baal to be killed. In verse 40 of chapter 18, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, but not one of them escape. They seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kisan and slaughtered them there. Then he says to Ahab, he says to him, the, the drought is ending. He says, go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab got himself ready, and he went from Mount Carmel back to his home, told his wife what had taken place. And she is just absolutely livid when she hears this. The account of Elijah continues on into 2 Kings chapter 2. So Elijah did anoint Elisha. It doesn't say whether he anointed those kings or not, I don't think. Then we go on a little bit further. In 1 Kings, we have the account of, of Ahab wanting Naboth's vineyard. And Jezebel devises this plan to have Naboth condemned as sort of a heretic. And then the king can take the land. And all that transpires. And when Elijah confronts Ahab, he tells him that his lineage is going to be completely destroyed and talks about Ahab's death and Jezebel's death, that Jezebel is going to be eaten by dogs. Ahab did repent 
the Lord spared his life for a little while. He later died in battle. He disguised himself so nobody would know he was a king. And an enemy archer just let fly an arrow at random. It just so happened to strike him right between his armor, and he died. And they washed his chariot out, and the dogs came and licked the blood from where the bloody water hit the ground. Then later on, Jezebel is killed, thrown out with him, and the dogs come and eat her. Real graphic stuff, good stuff there. All right, so we talk now about Elijah's spiritual battles. So he's had a, a pretty good run of things, calling for the drought, calling for the end of the drought, staying with the widow, the oil, the flower, the raising the sun from the dead and all this kind of stuff. And then the big showdown on Mount Carmel. Now we get to his flight. We're told that Elijah was afraid. He was afraid when Jezebel said, by this time tomorrow, you will be dead. He should have been on top of the world, acting in great confidence in light of all that he had seen God do. But he was afraid. And Jezebel comes gunning for Elijah. You would think Elijah would say something along the lines of, bring it on, sweetheart. Be you and Baal, me and Jehovah, and we know what he can do. Right? Yeah. That's how we think we would act. But he doesn't do that. He runs for his life. Mount Carmel was... If you know where the Sea of Galilee, you go west of the Mediterranean, this little jut out, that's Mount Carmel. So Elijah had been up in that area. He runs all the way down to Beersheba, which is the southern boundary of, of the kingdom of Judah. He leaves his servant there, goes into the desert a day's journey. That's when he lies down under a juniper tree where it had a little bit of shade and just has to die. And he goes to sleep. We might say that Elijah was suffering a little bit of shell shock. He'd been through so many different things, and people were always after him, and now the queen is after his life. He's just sort of had too much, too quick. He's too drained. Because some of the things that happened to him are, the, are what soldiers go through now when they've experienced that that shock of battle and they can't function anymore. They're moved off the battle line. They're giving good food to eat. If you ever eaten MREs, you know what good food is not, but they, they come off the line. They're given a good hot meal, several hot meals, sleep. Then after a period of time, they sent back into battle, okay? In a sense, that's what's happening here to Elijah. He's a little bit shell-shocked. He wants to die. Angel comes again, gives him food and all of that. And he seems to be somewhat okay because he gets up and he heads to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. So that's at the southern end of the, of the Arabian Peninsula, some distance away. So it takes him 40 days to get there. I think it was Arthur Pink in one of his books says, 
God did not call Elijah to come to Mount Horeb, but God in his providence directed Elijah to come to his providence, to his mountain. So when Elijah gets to the mountain, he goes into a cave and he lodges there, probably rested up from a 40-day journey. And God asks him a question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? God asked Adam a similar question. After Adam had sinned, God came into the garden as was his habit in the cool of the day. He didn't see Adam. He said, Adam, where are you? And Adam had to admit that he was afraid because he was naked. God said, well, how do you know you're naked? Who told you? What happened? And so everything kind of tumbles out and their sin is revealed. God sometimes asks questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants the person he's asking the question of to really come to grips with what is going on. So why had Elijah come to this mountain? His answer for the most part is, is truth, a truthful statement, but it shows some things which, which were his problem. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, it turns out he's not the only one left, but those other things are actually true. He's discouraged. He's done all of these things for the nation of Israel, and the next thing that happens after all of those things is somebody's trying to kill him. Somebody has the means and the, the opportunity to do that. He's afraid. So he ran away. I don't know exactly what he expected God to do, but God says, you know, go out and stand on the mountain. And I want you to see what takes place. And then there's three very violent things that happen. Three very violent things that happen. So we're now in the site, the Lord's question. Elijah's answered the violence that comes is there is a strong wind. So strong as even breaking the rocks off of the mountain. But God's not in the wind. There's an earthquake and everything's just shaking. Maybe he's afraid this cave's going to collapse on him. But God's not in the cave. Then he's confronted with a fire. He'd already seen fire at Mount Carmel when it fell and consumed everything but God was not in the fire. So what is God trying to tell Elijah? Because all those things that Elijah has gone through up to this point have been really dramatic things. We just, just recounted them, calling for a drought, raising somebody from the dead, all of those kind of things, the contest on Mount Carmel. And God answers him in a still, small voice. A still small voice, a whisper. Elijah goes out, he wraps his cloak around his face, and he just sort of soaks up God's presence 
is demonstrated in that voice. One of the things I think we can learn from this is that people often think we see God only in those things which are dramatic, once-in-a-lifetime events, the violent acts of God in this world. And sometimes people seek those things so much that they completely lose sight of God. When my wife and I first moved to the Fox Cities in 1991, 31 years ago, there was a church, the church in Appleton, had about 1,200 members. I got to know the pastor somewhat. They were a charismatic church. He said, you know, said, uh, we realized very quickly that just emphasizing all the charismatic stuff wasn't doing it. So we really focused more on Bible study and prayer. At that time, that church was known for having Bible studies all over the valley. And then he left. And another man came. And he'd been impressed by some of the revivals he'd heard about down in Florida. He wanted to have the same thing in his church there in Appleton. And so the Bible studies and the prayer kind of went out the window and miracle services took its place. When I say miracle services, there were actually ads in the newspaper advertising miracle service. Come Friday, 7 p.m., there'll be a miracle service. Whatever you need, it will be answered, that type of thing. Over a period of a few years, the church attendance went from 1,200 to 50. 1,200 to 50. Searching for that amazing didn't do it. And people had lost those things which were basic for the Christian faith. Well, Elijah's soaking up God's presence. I mean, like if you get real cold one day and you go out and stand in the sun and you kind of get warmed up, maybe something like that. And he asked him again, God asked him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah gives the same answer. It's interesting that God doesn't say, okay, you're wrong on all of these different points. He simply gives him a job to do. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and do these things on your way. Anoint two people as king. You know, Elisha is your, the prophet to, to succeed you. And so he did. Elijah's ministry was not done. He still had different things to take place. He had a very successful ministry. And then at the end, in 2 Kings 2, is he and Elisha are walking along. It's a big whirlwind, this chariot of fire, horses of fire come down, carry him away. The other prophets of Israel were really concerned about that. They implored Elisha to go, let's go look for him. And where'd they drop him off? He said, it's no point in doing that. But they implored Elisha to, to look for Elijah. So they sent 50 prophets out 
searched for three days and came back and said, we can't find him. He's no longer here. He's gone. And he was. Only to reappear on the Mount of Transfiguration some years later with Moses. Now, we had the flight, the fight, the flight, and the sight. Now, the conclusion of the matter. What do we learn? What, what do we need to draw from this? A number of things that are not necessarily connected to one another, except for the things that we would see. One, God is separate from his creation. God was not the mountain. God was not the wind, the fire, the earthquake. God was separate from those things. God knows us and provides for us those things that we need. We learned that we have to be faithful in all things, no matter what God has called us to do. We as Christians are involved in a spiritual war, whether we want to be or not. Think of Job. Throughout the book of Job, as he's talking to his good friends, as he's lost his family, his possessions, his health, he doesn't know why all that's happening. We as a reader do know because we know that in the first few chapters, the angels come to tell God, you know, what they've been doing. Satan was one of those who came and gave a report. And God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Well, of course he loves you. you. Give him everything under the sun. Take all that away. He'll curse you. And so Satan is allowed to do things in Job's life, except they, he can't take his life. And over a period of time, Job loses everything. And he doesn't understand why. But as we read that account, we understand that we are also involved in a spiritual war. We don't see the enemy as on a, a battlefield, but it's a spiritual war that we're involved in. So we have to be prepared spiritually for that kind of a battle. You must be faithful to God, to what God has called you to do, and use the gifts that God has given to you. I still remember very vividly a conversation I had when I was in seminary. I think I'd preached that Sunday at the church my wife and I were going to. It was a mission church, uh, like we were up until just recently, a year ago. And a friend of mine, a lady I'd known from college, sang that Sunday some special music. It was very pretty. And so we were having a dinner afterwards. My wife and I, her and her husband, some other people were sitting around. We were eating. And I made, I think she made the comment. She said, Bill, I really wish that I could share the word or teach the word like you're able to do. And I was kind of taken back. I was just a poor seminary student trying to learn my way through all of this. And I said, that's funny because I wish more than anything that I had a voice like yours. And we talked about that a little bit. And the other people kind of joined. Yeah, I wish I had this. And somebody said, well, I don't have that, but I'd rather have this. And none of us seemed satisfied in, in a way that what we had. 
And so we kind of realize that God has gifted us in different ways, expecting us to use the giftedness that we have in his service. Elijah had certain gifts other people didn't have, that's for sure. And he had to use those gifts as God had called him to use those gifts. You have to be faithful every day, not relying upon past experiences. You have to be faithful every day. You can't say, you know, back in 1979, I was pretty faithful back then. No, that's, that was great. But what about today in 2022? You have to be faithful today. Remember, God does, all, does, does not always act in the dramatic. He sometimes works with a still small voice. We are told in a number of places that we are to be still or silent before God. In Exodus, says, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still and be quiet. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Psalm 37.7, be still and before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men success, succeed in their schemes, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Be still or be silent. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in all the earth. Zechariah 2, 13, be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Be still and be silent so that you can hear God speaking to you probably not audibly, but through his word. If we're always running around like the proverbial chicken with a head cut off, and we're all excited about every single thing, we don't hear anything. So there's a place that where you need to sit and be quiet, read the word, and see what God is telling us in his word. Just a few more things. God's Spirit will direct you to Christ. God's Spirit will direct you to Christ. Our spiritual life centers around Jesus Christ and those things he has done for us as our mediator, as our Savior, as the one who's paid the ransom price for our salvation. We center our life around him and his word. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. We're not always to be busy. We're to have time just to rest. God reveals his will in his word. I lose track of time, but I think it was 15, maybe 18 years ago or so, that there was a big church in Chicago that had been the model for church plants across the country. And they had really dramatic stuff going on. They had concerts, they had uh, drama, they had world-renowned speakers and everything like that. 
And they did a study and to commend them for this, they were honest and they said, we realize that all these things that we've been doing all these years have not made disciples. All this show, all this elaborate stuff we've been doing. And they came to the realization that the way you grow spiritually is by reading God's word, meditating on God's word, and by prayer, and by putting into practice those things that God has told us that we're supposed to do. Now, you might say, didn't they know that when they started all of that? I guess not. They were looking for the dramatic, and they filled their place uh, several times over, but they weren't making disciples like God had called them to do. Two more things. God will never desert you. As much as I don't like saying this, God often works through suffering. I don't know all the reasons why that is, but he does. We don't like to suffer. He says, I don't like to suffer. I want things to always be nice. I want to always be healthy. But sometimes as we look at physical things, we realize that sometimes the suffering is what is needed to bring us to a certain conclusion. One thing I hate in exercise probably more than anything else in the whole world is lifting weights. I, I despise weights. But what happens when I am somewhat diligent and I'm doing weights? I get stronger. I get more muscle. I feel better. But I don't like it. But that suffering has a good end for me. And the last thing, God knows all of those who belong to him. Elijah thought he was, at that point, the only person left who was faithful in Israel. And God didn't make a big to-do about it, but he said, no, I've got 7,000 other people who are still faithful. The remnant who has been faithful to me. You're not the only one. Some of you may have thought, here in Oshkosh, you know, how many good churches are there in Oshkosh? Well, we're not the only one, obviously. But you can kind of count them on one hand or two hands, maybe. And you say, oh, boy, we're just, you know, we're just hardly uh, anything. But we don't know what God knows. And we don't know what is going to happen in the future. Don't be discouraged because numbers may not be what you think they should be or want them to be. And realize that our view is kind of like through a telescope. If you look at something far away through a telescope, you're only seeing a very small field of vision. You don't know what's going on either side of what you're looking at. There's a sense that that's how we see things from our perspective, just a small little slice of reality. But God sees the whole picture. And hadn't God told us that he is going to be victorious? He'll bring all of his to himself. He'll take all of us with him to heaven. Elijah got to jump, jump the gun just a little bit. 
but we will also wind up where he is in God's time and timing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we look at Elijah and we, we see the tremendous things that you did through him. And yet, Father, we see that in many ways he was an ordinary man, uh, just like us, with strengths and weaknesses and discouragements and so forth. I pray that you would help us to be able to fight the discouragement, remembering these things that we've seen in his life, and just pray that you would help us always to be diligent to do those things which do bring spiritual satisfaction, not always searching for that which is dramatic, but doing those things which are important, such as Bible reading, prayer, meditation, and carrying act, obedient acts according to your commands. Lord, we might say, well, that's not real glamorous. Maybe it's not. But that's the thing which causes spiritual growth and causes spiritual satisfaction. It's when we depart from those things, we know that's when we get spiritually discouraged. And keep us from that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.